0: I wouldn't describe myself as a seat of the pants composer or just an improviser, but I do believe that improvisation and being open to the leading of a moment in a piece is absolutely essential for drawing out the most meaningful potential narrative.
1: How can we become an instrument to create art that transforms the lives of our brothers and sisters? What can we discover about God's truth through the gift of music, on today's episode, composer in residence at the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Liturgy, Frank Laraca, shares how music has the power to reunite and gather people as a family around the table of Christ.
0: There is in each and every one of us this deep inbuilt longing to be in the presence of God. And beauty is one of the principal means of perceiving God's own beauty and transcendence. Why are these cathedrals, these medieval Gothic cathedrals, why are they so beautiful? They're not beautiful for their own sake. They're beautiful because they open a window onto some other realm of beauty, and that is the beauty of God.
1: By being open to hearing and seeing God in the beauty he has inspired, we allow him to enter our lives, ignite our hearts, and turn us into a new song that proclaims his glory. This is Living the Call. Frank LaRocca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deacon.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's such a privilege to have you. Um I, I'm a bit of a, of a nerd about things I don't understand, uh, music being one of them, mathematics being another one, where I really appreciate the concept of being a composer, being able to write something down, the structure, the beauty, the different layers of it, just like I can with like complex math. But I can't do any of them myself. But So it's a great, uh, it's a great privilege to have, to have you uh, such an accomplished composer on the show, especially given your area of focus.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I, if, if you ever want a music theory lesson we can just we can talk offline
1: we're, uh, for sure were you, were you, um, I've heard about the relationship between some, in some sectors between music and mathematics were you good at math? are you good at math?
0: no and no <laughs> math was my worst subject I'll give you a there, good example
1: there goes that theory my,
0: let's see my first report card junior year of high school Five subjects, four A's and a D. I'll
1: guess which one was math.
0: Uh, yeah. So I uh, there is some wiring, um, and I'm 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 talking about higher math now. I was I was a good math student up through geometry, which I mm-hmm. realize is a sort of a form of higher math, but it was also logic, which just clicked with me. Once once we got to you know. Word translating word problems into equations and then trigonometry and analytical geometry and all that stuff, I I don't know. It just, Mm. it never sank in. So I, I, uh, based on my own experience, I think the, um, the, I mean, there is a relationship between music and mathematics in the sense of order, uh, proportion, ratio, Uh, simple arithmetic things like, you know, number of beats in a measure and then, you know, dividing the beats up. But uh, beyond that, um, I think it's overstated. Mm. Uh, beyond that, yeah. It, yeah, it's overstated. And it depends what kind of music you're talking about, too. I mean, there are periods of time when actually music and, and you know, numbers were very, very closely aligned with one another. The... Um, early early medieval music mm-hmm. it was actually based on number systems but uh that you know that ebbs and flows i mean uh a schubert song is not based on a number system and it's a thing of exquisite beauty so
1: It seems to me that, you know, as you get into the the higher levels of either though, either music and mathematics, like you need to have a decent portion of either hemisphere of your brain operating, right? Because in the area of mathematics, yeah, it can be at the level that I understood math, which was even lower than yours. I couldn't even get past algebra in high school. Geometry was like, you know, a dream at some point. I had to take business. I had to take physics for poets. That's how I I got out of uh, my college elective. But, uh, But in any case, but there comes a point. Though beyond the rudimentary stuff of mathematics, the kind of ordering and all that stuff, where there is this sense of, on some level, creativity, right? And that's why the concepts of higher math are things I can understand, things like chaos theory, right? The idea of the kind of interrelationship between things. If a butterfly flaps its wing somewhere, it has this effect on something else, and you know, the kind of everything in between. That connects those things. That's a concept I understand, even though i if you showed me a equation that said this, I wouldn't understand what it is. And it seems to me that music in some way is like that. If somebody sat me down and you know said, "Hey, play this chord, these chords or on a piano or hit these strings on a guitar, which they'd have to show me because i don't I can't pick up an instrument and play anything. But if they were to show me that, it seems that that's one level. And then at some level, though, the idea of actually, you know, creating, of hearing something, weaving things together, uh, you know, unfolding a narrative of what you want this music to see, to, to be, or to mean, or to communicate, just as like, it's like at a different level, but on some level, it, you see what I'm saying? Like the phenomenon could exist yeah. in both fields, but.
0: Well, yeah, of course, music, music doesn't deal in equations, but it certainly deals in very complex relationships. I mean mm. that example you gave of you know a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere and something happens somewhere else. Well, that's that's true. In a piece of music, you you know you alter a phrase uh, somewhere towards the beginning, you know, uh, of a piece that you're working on, and it can disrupt mm. the order and rightness of what of what follows it. But it's 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 more a matter of um, Not numbers, but just um, logic, the logic of something like good rhetoric, you know, a well composed speech or oration that establishes uh, a premise, expands out from it, presents areas of tension in opposition to it, resolves them, that sort of thing. That, for me, is what the experience of composing is like a very strong narrative sense now what what is it narrating well if it's a piece of music without words in a sense it's just it's narrating itself the inner dynamics of its of its own life um if and if it's music setting words Mm -hmm. then uh, particularly if we're talking about liturgical music then we're getting into realms that Become very um, rich with potential meaning and layers of meaning you think of you're just you just you just take a portion of the mass, the sanctus i mean i I'm sure no, but maybe somebody's done a survey, but I'm sure by now there must exist well in excess of i don't know twenty five thousand settings of the sanctus, if not more I bet and no two are the same. How does that happen? You know, there's got to be an almost um, limitless well of meaning um, in these words uh, to be uh, drawn out by different settings.
1: When you, when you compose, let's talk about that for a second. And you have this narrative and at least in the two context of liturgical and not, in the liturgical setting, it seems that you're you you have a setting, right? In other words, especially in the, in a in a mass, where there are parts of that liturgy that are meant to um, you know express or explain something to the audience, which in that case would be a congregant sitting there at a liturgy. You know, you've got the penitential rite and then you've got other things universal prayer the sanctus the the uh, the agnus dei all these different areas but each of them has like a, is its own thing but is also part of a broader story now in a secular piece of music or maybe just in other settings where you don't have that structure to attach music to do you like imagine a structure that you want to communicate to people hearing music? Do you, do you want them to feel high at a moment, low at a moment, questioning something, pondering? Do you, do you lay that out ahead of time? Or is that, is that, does it depend?
0: Yeah, no, no, it it is. There may be some people who can lay out the entire narrative ahead of time and that's, and then just compose to it. Um, Working that is, you know, without any kind of uh, point of reference, not you know, a film or a poem or, or something like that. I personally find that approach to be limiting, um, because if you lay out your plan ahead of time and then just go through and follow it, you're not leaving you're not leaving room for well, we'll just use a common word, you're not leaving room for inspiration yeah you're not leaving room for yourself to respond to a moment in the music in the way that it hits you then as opposed to the way you may have conceived of it earlier um, in the process and so i'm um I, I'm not a I wouldn't describe myself as a seat of the pants composer or just an improviser, but I do believe that improvisation and being open to the leading of uh, a moment in a piece is absolutely essential for drawing out the most meaningful potential narrative.
1: Have you ever, I, I think it, I think it's the composer, the minimalist composer, uh, John Cage, I believe, who has that piece that's like four and a half minutes of just nothing, the pianist walks up and he puts his hands on the keyboard and then the piece is actually the audience and every time it's going to be a little bit varied. Have you ever, and maybe this is going back maybe more to your time um, at Berkeley and other places where you were maybe in a more experimental milieu, but have you ever composed where you actually, as part of the construction of the piece, have this kind of openness to whatever that inspiration happens to be at that moment in some way? Does my question make sense?
0: Yes, I understand. You're, uh, you're, you give over to uh, the performers on the stage. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, now in interpretive freedom, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because otherwise, you're not really taking full advantage of the collaborative process. I, I remember a piece I composed a, a number of years ago for a uh, solo cello. A very challenging piece. Um, I was lucky to work with a cellist from the San Francisco Symphony. And, you know, we spent many, many hours together while he was rehearsing and him asking me questions and should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? But then one of our times together, he said you know frank um at a certain point you're just going to have to give this piece to me mm. and i said what what do you mean he said you're trying to hold on to a single vision of what it might be that you had as a result of of writing it he said let me tell you in my experience and whether it's beethoven or a living composer or whatever um if you don't let the performer into the developing life of the piece as it's being interpreted you you might as well use a, you know a, a computer mm. and I, I mean i was re- i was really quite young at that point it was an enormous insight to me the this willingness to give it up to the interpreters and let them augment whatever you've presented them with, with uh, the unique gifts that they have as singers or uh, instrumentalists or conductors.
1: Many people listening to this podcast, Frank, may not fully uh, capture the idea of interpreter that you're describing. So by, by interpreter, you mean somebody who is playing a piece, a given instrument, in the composition that you've written.
0: Yeah, well, you could think of it like uh, you could think of it like a play. So there's this character in a play called Hamlet, right? And you put on a production of Hamlet, and there's an actor portraying that part. The way that actor portrays that part is not going to be the same as a dozen actors somewhere else in the world portraying that same part at the same time. Um, It's the same part is the same words and stage directions and everything that Shakespeare wrote, but it's going to be 12 somewhat different Hamlets. Um, And that's 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 the kind of interpretive freedom um, and skill on the part of the interpreter that I'm talking about.
1: That is a huge insight, though, the idea that you can write, you know, on a sheet of music, a given note. But the way that that note is played, or even beyond playing, performed, right? How it's given life by a musician can vary dramatically. Um, And and certainly as a non-musician, but appreciator of music, I definitely understand that. I can imagine as a young composer how that would have been very inspiring. And in a way, there's a little bit of a Christian... Principle there about surrender, right? About about um, you know letting go a little bit of your baby.
0: Yep, that's uh, that. In fact, that's my uh, my first child had been born not long uh, before the composition of this piece for solo cello that I'm talking about, Um, and that's that was exactly the image that came to my mind when the cellist said, "You've, "You've got to hand it over to me." It's almost like giving up your child into someone else's care. Under what conditions are you going to do that? Well, you have to have a great deal of trust hmm. in the person. You're giving them up. Yeah.
1: E- even before you get to the interpreters, as a composer, are you thinking of the instruments as characters?
0: Mm, uh, probably not in the way that I think you're asking that question. Instruments do have character. Um, and, you know, you see, you, I mean, you can see this played out in, in, in certain compositions, uh, by certain composers. Um, you, you think of, uh, so there's, so there's this piece for orchestra from the 19th century by, uh, the French composer Camille Saint-Saëns called Carnival of the Animals. And it depicts you know, segment by segment, different animals in this uh, scenario. And you just, you know, you hear the, the flowing grace of a cello melody and you just go, oh yeah, that is what it's like when you see a swan float by. Sure. Or, you know, you hear the, you know, sort of humorous quacking of an oboe and you go, uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine that's a duck. And I certainly know that a flute couldn't portray that in the same way. It's, so it's partly a matter of instruments having a certain degree of inbuilt character that you can call upon, not necessarily to depict something so literal uh, as an animal, but more more like using uh, shades of color or light and shadow the way painters do to to. Um, to, to just draw a listener in and then allow them or hopefully allow them to experience something that you intended for them. You, you just learn through experience that there are families or particular instruments that can achieve a particular thing that you have in mind better than others.
1: And that happens for sure. In my own experience, my wife, who's you know a lover of music but not a musician on any level, loves stringed instruments. And it, I wouldn't even say that she's particularly knowledgeable about any kind of classical music, but loves the violin, loves the cello. It speaks to her. I've seen her weep listening to uh, cello, violin, etc., uh, viola, etc., and and not being able to describe why that that's the case, but. You know, on some level, people being attuned to like a given instrument or instrument well, family.
0: That, that is what, among others, um, Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict Sixteenth calls the wound of beauty. Mm. There is, there is in each and every one of us. And some of us are aware of it, and others are not. Some are aware to a great extent, some are not aware of it hardly at all. and there there is this deep, inbuilt longing to be in the presence of god, to to feel his presence. Um, and beauty is one of the principal means, and it's a Pure, it can be purely nonverbal means of perceiving some aspect of God's own beauty and transcendence and it's it is uh, there there's there's this other prayer this um, after communion meditation by uh, uh, I believe it was Saint Bonaventure where he talks about the the most healthful wound of thy love. Mm. There's wounds where we're all, it's, it's a way of describing the vulnerability that we have and should have to, uh, to the presence of God. And when we're struck in a particularly deep way, it's like a, as paradoxical as this might seem, or a healthy wound that yeah. we experience. That's where the tears come from. The joy comes from the experience of knowing or sensing God's presence. Uh, uh, the tears come from it's so, so beautiful that um, we, it wounds us, but in a healthy manner.
1: That reminds me also of a quote from St. Augustine, um, which I'm I'm sure I'll probably get wrong. Actually, I just looked it up here in the back. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, and it dazzled me.
0: Right, St. Augustine. And and I'm sure that Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict, who is uh, a a great... Devotee. uh, um, ...scholar of, of, of the early Church Fathers, was undoubtedly aware of this image... Um, in St. Augustine, and um, was using that uh, in making his own um, meditation on beauty.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's such a great, you know, um, metaphor, if you will, just because a wound is, yeah, there's deep feeling around cool. a wound, but a wound is also the cause, hopefully, of care, of somebody uh, being attentive to you, of a healing, of a Experience. There's so many things that a wound brings with it, which is, brings to mind to me also, you know novenas to the sacred wounds, right, or or, right. or devotions to the wounds of Christ, right, because they're so personal, deep feeling. But like this, this, and, and of course, the orientation of these wounds haven't been gotten for the purposes of saving us. All of that together, and the, just the image of that wound, it's very powerful.
0: And you think of the. Saint. Francis of Assisi and his stigmata oh right yeah. five wounds uh, you think about he w- he was by his wounds we are healed amen there's something paradoxical, and it all it all comes together in, in the person of Jesus Christ, um, the the beauty and woundedness that in a mysterious way that we'll never completely understand in this plane of existence, um, tells us something very, very important and deep about the character of God.
1: We were talking about beauty also a moment ago, and one of the things that really strikes me about you is that you've been described as an apologist— right? Apologists for a, dis- a distinctly Christian faith, but not in the way that we think of apologetics, right? Through persuasion or debate or explanation, but through the beauty of music. And I know that that's a big part of, you know, the work that, well, obviously you're doing now with Benedict the Sixteenth Institute, but even before that. But yeah. the idea of this apologia, right, which is another Benedict thing, but of right. of, a, of a vehicle of apologetics being beauty, art, music, is is something that i think in a, even people who know about apologetics i think it just escapes the vast majority of them because we're very interested in making arguments in in argumentation and refutation and in, in doctrine all of those things are important but you kind of get at the heart of this thing when you're really focusing at you know beauty as itself a modality or an apologia and i think that's super awesome i mean i think it's just the great well, you,
0: you know i was <laughs> I discovered that I was doing this after I had begun to do it. What I mean is I, once, I was once reading um, uh, an essay by uh, Joseph Pierce in which I, I came across this phrase, the apologetics of beauty. Hmm. And what he was talking about is the, uh, the triad of truth, goodness, and beauty that we uh, associate with, with God. Perfect truth, perfect goodness, perfect beauty. There are also modes of apologetics or evangelization. Truth, moral truths, the truth of the order of the universe. Goodness, the works of uh, charity that the church has engaged in since her founding and epitomized by people like um, uh, St. Mother Teresa. Um, But beauty is also... A form of evangelization that we seem to have forgotten about to a very great extent um, in the modern age, but which our ancestors understood perfectly. I mean, why are the goth? Why are why are these cathedrals uh, in Europe? These medieval Gothic cathedrals. Why are they so beautiful? Mm. They're not beautiful because somebody, they're not, they're not beautiful for their own sake. They're beautiful because they open a window onto some other realm of beauty. And that is the beauty of God. Yeah. So, you know, when I was in graduate school, this, this question of beauty, even though we didn't use that word, um, was a tremendous topic of debate and and disagreement. Um, on the one hand there were those who thought that beauty had become an irrelevant category by which to evaluate works of art I had most, most of my teachers in uh, composition teachers in grad school would have laughed um, mm. if I had brought up the concept uh, of beauty and yet I couldn't uh, I there was some something inside of me I was constituted in some way that I could not wholly embrace this kind of nihilistic um, jagged dissonant uh, off putting modern music that was all the rage in in the conservatories and uh, in the back in the day
1: yeah, I would have thought you would have even had challenges defining, even defining terms about at the beginning of discussing beauty, like what beauty is. You know, but but I affirm what you said that especially you know if I'm if I'm pegging the years correctly, there is you know a lot of movement around these you know kind of uh, atonal, you know experimental, and all right. these different things that. You know, we're out there, I guess you get points maybe for being innovative, if that is a thing, but it doesn't point to anything or certainly open a window to anything that can be, you know, reliably perceived anyway.
0: No, what it opens a window onto or is supposed to shine a light onto um, is the brilliance and originality of that individual (laughs) person. That was absolutely the highest order. I mean, everybody could hate the music. It could sound like uh, you know it could sound like broken glass uh and 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 car engines overheating. but if it was original and different, well, well then genius. You, you know you, you've achieved uh, the heights um, and That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I mean, th- 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 I, I thank God that he made me in some way that um, I always regarded that sort of thing like the emperor's new clothes. You know, I, I, th- I think everybody there, you know, I don't know if you could if you could get them alone and really get them to, to speak uh, the truth without worrying about somebody overhearing them would would they all would have said well yeah of course you know i mean obviously I, had, I i i acknowledge that a beethoven symphony is better than you know uh you know breaking glass um uh as as a musical statement but you know that's not the way it is now everyone just seemed to accept that um that that concepts that that things like simplicity directness and and truth in art were just Relics of the past and we had sure. outgrown. Or in a way you could
1: also make a theological case. In a way it's a kind of a form of idolatry in the sense that if the greatest thing that this thing can be is a an imprint of the composer's fingerprint, right? It, it ascribes yeah. to his or her greatness. That's the ultimate end of it. Well, if that's the finish line, isn't that like a kind of idolatry in a way? I mean like oh, I'm kind it's of-
0: absolutely it's absolutely a form of idolatry. Um, where you are the highest rule of truth in the universe. Um, so I mean, I you know, I was catechized pretty well uh, as a child, even though I wound up drifting away from the faith for uh, a great many years. That formation in me also must have planted in me some deep. Memory or instinct about God and beauty and truth and goodness, because what called me out of this modernist quagmire that I found myself in um, was precisely that a search for beauty and meaning in my music and, and a way to um, have my own voice but it but not a voice of. Uh, negation and rejection, but one that had something new and positive to sure. present uh in 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 uh, uh, in, in the musical uh, discourse I mean uh, I spent years trying to formulate and explain not just to others but even to myself, so you know what is it that makes this so? ugly and this not, and this so beautiful. And w- what I realized I lacked, eventually I realized, what I lacked was a philosophical language and philosophical categories of thought in which to um, locate these things. Uh, so it, it's, it's funny. I mean, my, my search for beauty... And the ability to create beauty um, as, a, as a living, as a modern composer led me into not just philosophy, but it actually led me back to God after all those years away.
1: In, in those years that, that you were away, though, Frank, when you would come across or interact with or whatever, um, with Catholic composers, either of the classical period or contemporary ones, did you? What was that that experience like? Did you conceive, like, you know, whoever it may be, I don't know, Mozart, but what, but whatever the composer happened to be, did their experience of faith factor into your appreciation about them in the years that you weren't, that you were away from the faith? In other words, I'm not asking it very well, but what, if any? I understand what
0: you're, I understand what you're asking. So, you know, the biographies written about those composers, whether it's Bach or Mozart or whoever would give, you know, a kind of begrudging acknowledgement um, to the, their religious faith in, you know, whatever degree they held it. Bach, of course, very deeply. Mozart, not so much. Not so much. Joseph Haydn, uh, Mozart's, one of Mozart's mentors, very, very deeply, and, and so on. But, uh, but then they would immediately move past it because they'd say, but it had nothing to do with their music they set up this two-tiered system of religious faith which exists in only uh the abstract the the numinous realm but then down here in reality that's that's where their music resides and of course that's a that's a false dichotomy um but that's that's how they took care of it that's how i used to perceive it myself and i will i will tell you that there were there were two composers who um kind of cracked through that um that that shield uh that invisible shield around the 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 faith and music uh question one of those uh was Igor Stravinsky who uh even though he's infamous for his um Ballet music uh, to the right of Spring. People call it atonal. It's actually not, but it certainly was not uh, harmonious in the way, say, the Debussy often is. And they were contemporaries. He wrote a, a composition called Symphony of Psalms um, in the early 1930s, in which he he does a setting of texts from three psalms, and it's it's new. It's different but it is very clearly sacred music. And I thought, wow, mm-hmm. that's, that's really amazing that he was able to, through, through an unexpected lens, focus attention and be able to communicate for a listener a sense of the sacred. And then the other one, uh, was the Estonian composer Arvo Pert. Oh sure beautiful In yeah yeah really really beautiful when I when I bought my first CD of his music I think it was 1989 when I was really really just reaching a, a crisis point in my own grappling with these questions I put on that CD and I I couldn't e- I couldn't even describe what I was hearing to somebody because it seemed to obliterate every kind of traditional characterization. It mm. sounded simple on one level, but you could hear the complexity of all the voices as they interacted with one another. It sounded very, very consonant. That is, you know, lacking in, in not the exact uh, opposite of atonal, and yet it didn't sound like anything I had ever heard before. There was uh, a harmony that was consonant and beautiful, but yet brand new to my ears. And mm. I could not figure out what this was, mm. but it opened my eyes to the possibility that such a thing could exist. Um, and so our, our, our became a very, a very important um, Kind of light in the darkness for me.
1: When you when you came in, came across Stravinsky and, and Arvo Pärt in this case, were you at that point? Were you antagonistic to the to to, to the church or to faith? Were you just d- disenchanted? Uh, had you latched onto a different kind of ideology to define who you were? What what where were you at that moment?
0: Well, I, I'll I'll I'll, t- I'll um, talk about Arvo. In, in 1989, I'll, I'll give you the short version of this, I had, I had a very specific musical crisis. The, uh, the largest work I had ever composed to date uh, was going to receive a prominent public premiere in just a few days. We were at rehearsals, and the great climactic moment in the most important part of the piece, we rehearsed it. And it was an utter failure. Everything that I thought it would do, it did not do. Hmm. And as a result, it, it would be, you know, it, it, it would be like uh, opening a book and there's just like missing pages or, sure. you know, right, right, right at the point where everything is coming together. You know, it, it's just random letters on a page or something. You just I mean, it destroyed, utterly destroyed the piece.
1: And Frank, just really quickly on that particular note though, this is because you as the composer were hearing it, hearing it in air quotes for the first time being played back and it didn't do what you imagined it would? Like what?
0: Yes. Okay. Yes. It didn't do what I imagined it would. I okay. mean, I had heard it in my head. I had banged it out, out on the piano and I was convinced that this was what I, exactly what I should have had there. But when I heard it, live for the instruments and uh there and a tenor singing solo it just it didn't do any of the things that that i am so i'm 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 four days away from this premiere there's one rehearsal left it's a friday night i realize i'm either going to be humiliated when this happens or a miracle is going to have to happen, and I'm going to have to come up with a lot of music on the spot, and it's going to have to be exactly the right thing that the existing music uh, was. I, I, it, composing in those days, for me, was very, very difficult, in part because of this inner conflict I had between my training as a modernist and my instincts about real and the, the thought of, have, of being able to compose as much music as I needed, and then get write it all down this, because this is before notation software write it all down on the score, and then write it all out in each of the individual parts for each of the players. It, it, was, it, was, it was an unimaginable task. I got down on my knees, and I prayed to the God that I remembered from my childhood, I said. Oh, dear God, if you are real, Mm. please, now is when I need your help. Please, dear God, if you are real, please help me with this.
1: The powerful prayer of the agnostic, the agnostic prayer works wonders. I I prayed the
0: agnostic prayer, Deacon, I'm telling you, I got up. I went over to the piano, started playing, fiddling around with a few notes, and suddenly it was there. Wow. What exactly what I needed better than anything I could ever have imagined was there. Sure. Now, of course, it was, you know, it's not like I just like, like I was a medium at a seance and my fingers just, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, transcribe you know, heavenly messages. Um, I, you know, I still had to go through the process of, you know, working it out and polishing it. But I went on a 36-hour uh, non-stop um, work schedule to get it all done and finished in time to deliver it for the final rehearsal. And when I heard it, I, I know this is going to sound so, you know, I, I don't know, it's just so, uh, I don't know, movie scriptish. But when I heard it, I knew God was real. As an adult... That is, as an adult who had gone through all these years of skepticism and denial and, <clears throat> and rejection and all these things, for a person in that state, I knew God was real. It's not that I never knew that before, but I knew it, you know, as a five-year-old or a 12-year-old. I didn't know it as a, how old was I, as a uh, 39-year-old.
1: I think it's the difference also between this sort of you know only intellectual understanding of um, of the deity of God of the supernatural and what sounds like the beginning of a relationship that you would have with somebody. What makes it's not you know if you if you um, I don't know what a good metaphor might be, but if you think of maybe some some tribe aboriginal or otherwise who hasn't really interacted with a lot of people before it's one thing to, to show them a book and say hey there's other people living in these different countries it's a completely different thing to walk in there and shake their hand right it's a, and it yeah. and it's that which um i can imagine is something that's happening to you hearing the, this piece back where you recognize your work but you see a contribution that is from somewhere else namely someone yep. else
0: um, Absolutely. It
1: also reminds me of the scripture passage about God, you know, packing the cup, packing it down and overflowing, that kind of like over-delivery, you know, God always yeah. delights in the, the extravagance of God. Like, it's not just sort of what you expected, but it's like the four things you weren't looking for that still happen. Like, that's a good, That, that that's one of the hallmarks in my life, and it sounds like here too, of how God has talked to me.
0: I can tell you that <clears throat> from that day forward, I never ever again doubted the existence of god wow now as far as getting to know the fullness well, well whoever knows the fullness of god but you know what i mean getting getting to know a fuller and fuller and fuller truth about god that still took me uh, quite a long time and i uh, the at, at first i at first i returned Briefly to the Catholic Church, um, I started going to mass again. Um, I don't know why it didn't take, but um, I tried and it didn't really take.
1: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame it on the music at your parish. That's just going to be a guess. Uh, well,
0: well the, music, the music was not that great, I, I will say. But uh, yeah, I don't know why it didn't take. Uh, probably because I wasn't willing to undergo a complete enough surrender to what the church asks of us, um, let's say in our moral lives, um, that would have opened me up more fully um, to God. Um, the next thing I tried was a kind of uh, evangelical Protestantism, and that, at the time, well, that just seemed that seemed like the answer. And you know, and uh, and and I, I don't want to discount it too much. Um, I I went to something, uh, I guess you would call it a a charismatic evangelical service, and I really did have an experience of God. I mean, I had an almost road to Damascus-like experience of God there, and what that had that my musical experience did not was an utter conviction as to the source of the barrier that still exists between me and God. And I just, I remember saying it out loud. I said, I finally see it. It's my pride. Don't ask me why I never understood that before, because that's pretty much always the problem. But for me, I understood it uh, in that moment. I stayed with uh, various forms of Protestantism for uh, about 13 years growing increasingly disenchanted uh, with uh, essentially the moral confusion um, in various denominations, um, theology, and uh, especially their moral theology, and became increasingly attracted back to the Catholic Church after, uh, after Pope Benedict was elected in 2005. I mean, I watched the whole thing on TV. I sensed, even then, not as a practicing Catholic, that it mattered enormously who the church chose as its new Pope, because that person would be the face of Christianity to the rest of the world. And they had to choose the right person. And they did. And so I started like, being curious about Catholicism again, eventually coming back to the church in um, uh, uh, the, the first Sunday in Lent uh, in the year. 2009 i went to confession the day before bless me father for i have sinned it has been 42 years since my last confession thanks be to god god bless god, god bless that priest that he was he was ready for me oh, really? um
1: so you made an appointment or you just walked into a confession oh, no no, no no no
0: what i mean is he was such a good priest oh got it okay i got it okay. he, he, was, he was ready to hear you know a lifetime of,
1: yeah. I had a similar situation with my uh, my father in law, who had been away for the church from, for for thirty five years, and um, he he had gone through a pretty bad uh, you know divorce at some point. Actually, a couple of them had moved to California, was actually living with us for a period of time, and was slowly becoming interested in you know the aspects of faith. My wife and I and our kids were being raised. Obviously, we're all living a Catholic life. And we didn't impose anything on him. But just one day, like, I was just going to confession, and he, he would know that I would go to confession from, from time to time. And I just said, hey, you want to come to confession with me? And he said, he looked at me for a second, just kind of paused, and he was like, yeah, I do. And I said, well, all right, great. I don't even, wow. it wasn't even, it wasn't even that I've been, like, pining or scheming the moment to invite him. Like, I hadn't even done that. It was just, he's doing his own thing. We're doing our thing. God's calling everybody. He'll figure it out, and we can be as good of witnesses as we can. But I remember inviting him to that, going in there. I went into confession first, and I told the priest as I was walking out, I said, Father, the person coming in right behind me hasn't been to confession for 35 years. And he was like, thank you for letting me know. You know, because yeah. a lot of times when you have folks who've been away for so long, it can be a, you know, hour long confession and you got yeah. 30 people outside. You know, there's some practical aspects of it as well. But but just what a, you know, beautiful. I mean, look, all the sacraments are beautiful. I am to tell a guy like you that. But there's something about reconciliation and it goes back to the wound, I think, that we we're talking about that yeah. is this such a stunningly beautiful sacrament that where we can reunite, you know, those who have been away, those who have been, you know, lost, and, and just, it's so beautiful, just the change in him, and, and I'm not, I don't know how you would describe yours after that confession, but the change in him was just, I mean, a palpable difference in it, you know, uh, and it was really the road for him to come back to the faith, and, you know, uh, and, and, and now he's living a, a really beautiful Christian life, Christian witness.
0: Well, uh, I, I consider that confession to be the most significant and transformative t- time experience I ever had in my life, because all through my years as a Protestant, you know, I knew I was still sinning, and I, not to mention, you know, from back when I was in college and, and all these sorts of things, and, you know, some pretty serious sins in there. Um, I, the whole time I, the whole time I was worshiping as a Protestant, I was looking for a confessor, Hmm. you know, and there was, there was not one to be found. Um, And eventually I, I came to realize, you know what, you're still a Catholic, Frank, because you know that until you get into that confessional and you express your remorse and repentance and you receive absolution, your soul's condemned. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I guess <laughs> look, you know, l- looking for truth in all the wrong places, uh, you might call it. Eventually, I, I remembered where the fullness of the truth resided, and that was in the Catholic Church. And it, yes, it. Um, it was the, the most transformative thing i'm still doing some of the penances that he gave me and oh, wow. i'm glad to be yeah because it's a constant reminder to me of how how narrow a path righteousness can be and how easily you can you know slip off into the uh, Abyss.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. So always a good reminder every time you see a Catholic bishop and you see that crozier, you know, it's the little hook at the top, and that's the part that kind of bring you back from the edge when you're wandering away, but it's got the little sharp stick at the bottom, right? So you gotta occasionally right, get, exactly. get get poked yeah. and be held accountable for the things that you need to do. And it's such a such a great, such a great image. Um, yeah, thy rod and
0: thy staff, they comfort me.
1: Amen to that. Uh, yeah, I know I know for sure that reconciliation has been just a, a huge part of my journey. and I, i'm 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 always trying to encourage people about the sacraments in general. I talk a lot a lot to people who are in my work who are not, you know, particularly Christian or certainly not Catholic. And so some of these concepts, um, you know, take a lot of time to unfold, right? Because you've got the five second explanation of what, um, of what confession is, you've got a five-minute version, and then you've got a five-year one, right, which is this yeah. just constant understanding. The, it's almost in a way like music, right? Hearing a piece of music once, I love it, but you don't really know why. You hear it by the 10th time you've heard it, you have a sense of, oh, here's that moment. This is the moment that makes me feel a particular kind of way. That's like the huh. sacramental life is. These that's different layers kind of unfold.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. That, that's, a, that's a terrific analogy and, and really rings true to me.
1: I want to uh, switch gears a second here as we kind of get close to wrapping up, Frank, and ask you about a, a comment you made a while ago, and that was about the churches and cathedrals and the beauty that man has made in honor of God because it points to God. It's a window to God. It's a window to something else, right? And that that's lacking right. in a lot of—you were using it in a musical context, but I could argue it's lacking in a lot of other contexts, popular culture, et cetera. From my my standpoint, you know, there's there's obviously a popular culture, a dominant culture, whatever you want to call it, that is pervasive, that is in many cases corrosive to a lot of the things that we know are the kind of fullness of the truth and beauty that you've described over the course of, of this episode. And, you know, I I think about that just a moment ago before getting on the show, um, I was reading an article about the oldest parish in Chicago shutting down. We're recording this show on Monday, the 22nd of November, but on the 21st of November, Sunday, was the last Mass that they'd celebrated. This 115-year-old church, by American architectural standards, something to behold, beautiful, etc., But it's being shuttered. The diocese can no longer afford to even have it, right? Um, Now, without getting into the vagaries of that diocese, this diocese, maybe they could have managed it different, whatever, the fact of it is, is that there's a popular culture that has just taken such dominance over our lives as Americans. And, you know, the approach that you're taking, that Archbishop Corleone is taking, that Benedict uh, XVI Institute seems to be taking, is about kind of developing this pipeline of, of beauty and truth and goodness and You know, to to, and this is my question: Is that to infiltrate this current culture, remind us of what true culture looks like, create a new culture? What exactly is it?
0: Yeah, I I would say all of the above. When you when you think about the re growth of civilization after uh, the fall of Rome, so late antiquity. The early Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages, and so forth—all that, all of the—you know—the architecture, the art, the music, um, the these these sources of beauty came from the heart of the church. But they didn't—they uh, didn't stay enclosed by those walls. This, and I'm—I'm going to speak to music because that's what I know. The, the you know the great early medieval examples of polyphony is what gave rise to the great renaissance palestrina victoria examples of polyphony which in turn in the person of the composer claudio monteverdi uh, who wrote met, uh, some of the most beautiful sacred music in the world it provided him with the platform to create What we nowadays know as opera, and yes, operatic themes in those days especially tended to heavily favor themes from the Greek classics. You know, just you know the the you know the um, the working out of the rediscovery of the classics in the in in the Renaissance. But there is something at the heart of an opera that may. Not have as its subject matter anything obviously sacred, which nevertheless glows with a kind of inner light, mm. uh, and I uh, an inner light of truth, whether it's truth about you know what happened to <laughs> Orpheus and Eurydice, or you know whether it, whether it's uh, some distinctly uh, Catholic uh, truth it rings through the music because the music was born in the heart of the church and the, and the church gives us truth, goodness in wrapped up all in one package with its beauty. And I think, I think the problem is to a certain extent, um, the church turned her own back on her own patrimony of beauty at a certain period of time and a kind of continuous connection with this, with the past that that I'm talking about uh, was uh, ruptured and not, I'm I'm not going to name names, but there is an awful lot of bad music artwork, architecture, in, in the church, which do not ring forth with anything that could attract a wider culture the way that Monteverdi, playing off the Renaissance polyphony, created opera that drew in people from out from all kinds of cultural and, and religious backgrounds. What Archbishop Corleone is trying to do uh, is to, uh, he's, he's doing a hard reset in a way. He's trying to get back to those same fundamentals that the church understood centuries ago and rekindle the fire in the church for creating beauty, which, yes, resides first within her walls, but then has the potential to radiate outwards into the culture.
1: I love the idea of these things being born in the heart of the church. And you know, when you think about the heart of the church, and you apply a, a global lens, which of course you should as a Catholic, and look at what the heart of the of the church means in all of these different contexts, it, it it allows me to see some of the maybe Genesis story of, for instance, your Mass of the Americas, right? Which is an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of music. And we'll put links in the show notes for everybody, but, you know, to check out if they haven't already. But this idea of, you know, taking Spanish, Latin, English, Nahuatl, uh, you know, and, you know, incorporating all these different things, again, from the heart of the church— and putting them together in this just stunning composition, which has, for me, in my personal opinion, the added benefit of of trying to, you know, bring the Church, in addition to being a cultural tonic, of bringing the Church in the United States together closer, and by that I mean the Latino and Anglo community. Yes, so, and, and that
0: is—yeah, well, I was going to say that, I mean, that was—you just stated it right there precisely, what Archbishop Cordelione's vision was when he came up with this— concept of the mass of the Americas I mean it was it was his concept um, i I mean we worked on it together and I brought in some of my own uh, ideas uh, about what we could do um, particularly the Nahuot, um communion meditation on uh, ave Maria mm-hmm. um, but he said he said to me he said just Visualize, if you can for a moment, a California mission. It is very clearly a church building. It has things about its shape, its form, um, that you, you know instantly what it is. It's a church, but it does not look like a church in, you know, in the heart of France or England. It doesn't look like Chartres Cathedral or Westminster Abbey. Um, He said, that's what I want to do. He said, I know that drawing upon elements of Spanish language culture, specifically Mexico, mostly in this case, we can sacralize it in such a way, in just the way that the Franciscan friars sacralized the style of architecture they found in the New World and put it to the put it to holy purposes so that that's, that's what but, he asked me to do
1: and that's a you know in a great tradition of sacralizing uh, i love that word i've heard of it as you know uh, you know baptizing or christianizing or christening these these other things because that is the church right the church does not obliterate cultures she no. embraces and she she internalizes cultures because it is the universal church and then you know, raises them up to the glory, which is the ultimate realization of the fullness of the existence of God and his, and his son, Jesus Christ. Like, so it's like, if anything, it's a completer of cultures. You know what I mean?
0: It's a, a completer and a fulfiller yes. of cultures. Yes. And that's why it's the universal church, because it can... It can and has done that with any culture uh, into which it has come into contact. First, it was, you know, the culture, you know, the sort of the uh, the embers of Greco-Roman culture in the classical world, but then it was the cultures of the of the pagan tribes they encountered uh, in Gaul and places. Uh, like that in late antiquity and then as it read and then eventually encompassing the different cultures of the european continent reaching out um into parts of africa but also for our purposes most um uh, importantly uh into uh, the new world encountering those cultures and so that's why that's that's where i got the idea in the mass of the americas to actually reach past or into into the earliest stages of the colonial era um, in that part of the world. Um, Pre-Spanish language speaking culture in that part of the world. And also since this mass was a, a twin tribute, as he put it, to Our Lady of Guadalupe and Our Lady of the Immaculate, conception i i just thought well we have to hear what juan diego heard we have because she didn't our lady didn't address him in spanish or latin or whatever she addressed him in the language he knew what language did he know he knew not a lot um we have to hear in this mass we have to hear that language and we have to hear that language extolling the beauty and virtues of the mother of God. so that's how that found its way into the mass of the Americas, along with the the Spanish, the Latin, and the English. I have, well, of course, we don't have these, I guess we're not really making these distinctions quite in the same way we were before, but I have versions of the mass in addition for the ordinary form and then also for the extraordinary, extraordinary form, form. Um, which drops vernacular um languages except for the Ave Maria which is which if it's placed in properly in the liturgy still conforms to the 1962 missal the the missal of Pope Paul VI allows for greater freedom and so we have all the different languages um uh, much more easily finding a home for themselves um yeah. that's the one I did first But then, because the Archbishop wanted to do a high pontifical, extraordinary form Mass in the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, Washington D.C., I reworked a few of the movements um, in the Latin language.
1: If uh, we'll include this also in the show notes, but if people don't have, you know, the full the the, the time to listen to the entire uh, Mass at any given moment, we'll include a clip because I did find one on YouTube just of that Ave Maria, which. I mean, I've certainly never heard a Nahuatl version of Ave Maria. Uh, it may be, I can only imagine there's only a few of those maybe out there that are, you know, even accessible, maybe. Am I wrong?
0: Well, here's the thing. It, it, it depends, you know, so mine is, and I'm not saying this in any way to, you know, uh, my, mine is an example of a, a high art version of music. You know, it's classical. What can I say? That's what I do. Uh, sure. I'm not denigrating anything else by by saying that there are dozens of folk versions of that uh, of of Alway Maria's in Nahuatl, and in fact, when I was tra- just simply trying to find the text itself printed out somewhere, I went through all these YouTube videos and then you know down into the notes for the videos to try to just you know cut and paste the text, and then I started noticing oh, but this one's not the same as that one, and this one's not the same. and it, So there are all of these, um, I don't even know what to call them, variants, uh, distortions of of that text out there, um, you know, set and sung, you know, I'm sure by people of very good heart and very good intent who may not even know that what they're doing is, is, not, is not right. <laughs> right. So, but so, what's but what standard do you use to decide what the authentic version of this is? Well, I found a book, writ, published in sixteen thirty four, by a priest, Father Don Bartolome de Alva, who was himself he had a, um, a a Spanish father and a native Indian mother. So he grew up speaking both Spanish and Nahuatl in his household. He became a priest. He had a lot of, I'm just going to use the word, mestizo um, parishioners mm-hmm. who were either had been baptized or were thinking about it. And he, he just said to him, realized that, wait a minute, these people don't necessarily know Spanish. They certainly probably don't know Latin they're saying these prayers, they're making these confessions. Do they even know what they're saying? So he went and he wrote a book called Catechism in the Mexican Language. Or actually, it's a Catechism Large and Small in the Mexican Language. Included in that book is the original Nahuatl translation from the Latin of the Ave, Ave Maria into yes. the Nahuatl Awe Maria. Maria. So I was confident that I had found the authentic...
1: That sounds like a pretty reputable source to me. I'm amazed yeah. also by the fact that the dynamic that this priest identified in the 17th century still exists to, to a, in some cases to a large degree here in the U.S. as it relates to the now Latino, which is itself kind of a you know grandchild of the mestizo people, but the Latino right. parishioners and the Anglo parishioners in the sense that a lot of the times certainly I can say this in my life as a deacon you know will I'll be in either uh, you know a mass setting or in another liturgy you know baptism whatever that whatever it may be and you know do the entire uh, experience in Spanish and recognize even though everybody's Latino that after I'm done with the ceremony they're taking pictures and everything. And they're talking to one another in English. And, you know, I ask them, well, how come we did it in Spanish? I'm like, well, that's just the way that I grew up. And you have to like ask yourself, well, yeah, but are you engaging with this? Is this, you're not right. using that language now to talk to your loved ones, to talk to your kids. And so while it may be beautiful <coughs> and harken you back to this this nostalgia or heritage, if that's all it is, and I'm not suggesting it is for everybody, but if that's all it is for some people then we may be mi- missing something right so this, oh, yeah. this I, oh, sure. which i'm sure on some level mass of the americas is a huge to me one of the many facets that we need to think about right of how we actually solve this chasm that exists in these kind of two communities in the us but having a liturgy for it like you like you compose i think is a big part of it
0: yeah and the you know the other part of it was this 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 mass took place at the conclusion of what was, I believe, the 30th anniversary of the um, Cruzada Guadalupana that takes place in San Francisco every year, a 12-long mile procession, starting in one part of the city, all through the city, and culminating at the cathedral, you know, with Aztec dancers and horses and making stops along the way to pray at different shrines. And at the Mission Dolores um, in San Francisco, the archbishop obviously loves his parishioners. Uh, I think he has maybe uh, in some way a special affection for uh, those from Spanish speaking heritage because of his experiences as an auxiliary um, in San Diego, where that was sort of his territory. And he wanted to give them a gift and but he and other you know other people setting the mass in spanish i suppose have had the same intent but for whatever reason what what they have wound up giving them is something very calm, not very elevated sometimes not even of especially high quality however good their intentions this was intended to be a kind of um really hot, elevated <laughs> big ticket <laughs> uh, i'm right. running out of ways to describe it um gift to them not something common and familiar but something that was familiar enough that they recognize they recognized themselves in it and yet and by being drawn into it were lifted up to uh, a kind of higher uh Spiritual and artistic plane.
1: It is a, a gift. Is a very good way to describe. It. And I can tell you, as a Latino, listening to this mass, it definitely feels like a gift. And part of the recognition of that gift, or what gives it its worthiness for me, is that I, you know, it is also mine. It is my, is is my this this elevated, beautiful, extraordinarily well crafted. Uh, you know, musical setting is also now mine, right? Part of my patch, right. Right? part of my experience. So it's not something that belongs somewhere else that I don't see myself reflected in that I can recognize for its beauty, but is nevertheless foreign to me. This is also mine. That's part of the gift of it, I think, is that people can see themselves and their culture in it. And so they can now count that among the tapestry of all of their cultural experiences. And that's the part that makes it beautiful to me. One of yeah, the parts.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um i'm I'm living in Southern California now, as as you know, but your listeners might not know that when I did this Mass of the Americas, I was living um, in Northern California, where I had been for a long time anyway a, a number of the parishioners at my home church were from a, you know either Mexico or Guatemala or you know other spanish speaking cultures, and they came to this mass of the Americas, and one of the most deeply, deeply fulfilling aspects of it was to talk to them afterwards and, and see them with tears in their eyes, saying, saying exactly what, what you just said, you know, to hear these songs that I know from my childhood and which are, you know, an important part of, you know, who I was growing up, to hear them elevated in this high sacred manner as a, as a Catholic believer, just just change, you know, something inside. There's something bigger inside of me than there was before I, I heard this. And I, I mean, what can you say? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so, I'm just, you know, uh, I, I am not worthy. Um, <laughs> well, it is, <laughs> it, is um,
1: a, it is a beautiful gift. I know it's a, you know, it's, it's a recent vintage because you've done a lot of great things for a lot of years, but, um, but nevertheless, the fact that it's, it's something more recent, um, I, I do, you know, count it as, as like one of these great gifts of, uh, of, you know, modern to use that word as an uneducated musical person, but something in my lifetime, uh, that's been given to the church musically. So I definitely, you know, thank you for it. Frank, we've got to, we've got to shove on, no shortage of things for sure. us to talk about apparently. So, um, but we do have to get, we do have to get moving to our last section. Wait, what, but before we do, I wanted to allow you an opportunity to share with people ways that they could keep abreast of the work that you're doing. Uh, and again, we'll include all this in the show notes, but I, I'd like for you to talk about some of the things that maybe you're working on. I know you recently premiered another Requiem Mass, which you know maybe what you want to mention, but just let folks know about what you're excited about and also ways that they can follow you and your work.
0: Okay so you know I'm 70 years old so I'm not like you know the social media generation type um I do I, I do what I can uh, I mean I have a website it's a pretty good website franklaroca.com uh easy to get to um hasn't been updated in uh the last month cuz I've just been too busy but you know links to things um having to do with the Mass of the Americas or the uh, Requiem for the Homeless Dead that was just premiered uh, a couple of weeks ago are there, as well as, you know, uh, my whole previous body uh, of work. The, but, the, you know, the, this, this liturgical work uh, of recent years is sponsored by the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Liturgy, uh, creation of Archbishop Corleone. So, if people just Google, you know, Benedict 16 Institute, it will take you to the, their website where they keep good track of these things, as well as the other artists who are involved with this. There are painters, there's poets um, with this project of the archbishops. All of the uh, videos from Mass of the Americas in both versions, this Requiem Mass and, again, other things from my body of work are all up on YouTube. If you Google the name of the piece and YouTube or my name and YouTube, it'll take you to my YouTube channel. There's individual videos. There's playlists. So it's out there. Uh, I may not be, you know, as slick as... um, as my 30 something year old children, but, um, I try to keep up.
1: Well, I'm sure that's plenty. And, uh, and as mentioned for those listening, we'll have all this information, uh, in the show notes and you can access, but I will tell you that Frank is very Googleable and uh, his work is as well. So you'll have no issue doing it on Google. Very good. And Frank, you know, just to kind of wrap up, um, the, the kind yeah. of main segment of our show, you know, my great, Prayer for you is to continue this, obviously this this work that you've been doing for years, but now increasingly in the form of ministry because that's what it is from my yes. from my vantage yeah, point, and it's um, you know, just drawing people closer by showing them that window, that gate, that doorway to the source of all things, right? Which which art and beauty, etc., point us to. Uh, and so for that, you know, I, I really do uh, pray that the Lord continues to prosper everything that you're doing. Um, but uh, I'll ask you to
0: pray for one specific, sure. the next project that's coming up, which is on July 1st, 2022, at Mission Dolores in San Francisco. Um, I, I The Archbishop has asked me to write a Mass in honor of St. Junipero Serra. Oh, yeah. July 1st, of course, his Feast Day. When uh, Pope Francis canonized him, so so just I don't know just
1: I will you count on that?
0: It's it, it's al- it's always um, it, it's always a little nerve wracking when you've got s- something important like that that's been you know you, that you've been been given some responsibility for, of and so just you know prayers that I do my job and everyone else does their jobs and that it bring. Uh, and that, and that it be an appropriate honoring of this, uh, particularly for those of us in California, this very great saint.
1: Absolutely, count on our prayers. And uh, man, we could have a whole show just about Junipero Serra That's uh, that's an did. entire other page, I'm sure. And I know the archbishops, you know, very, very uh, powerful devotion to that, you know, to that saint and his interest in you know not letting a a new narrative emerge um exactly. you know, about, about who this who this person was uh, and that's right. not to say you know anybody had a particular that, that anybody is perfect historically nobody is um you know uh, so but uh just what's been said and advanced of uh, of him is i mean is just borderline yeah, the ludicrous distortions in some really cases. Just it's really yeah it's really gotten out of control incredible. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you, maybe we'll have you back then, Frank, to, you know, w- once you, uh, debut that, uh, that piece I and mean, we have you back, we can talk about when oh. you and on some of these other subjects, oh, yeah. but, um, yeah. but yeah. what yeah, a great privilege to have you. All right, Frank, uh, you ready to play? Wait, what? I guess so. Sure. All right, here we go. Here we go. Question number one, Frank, we will each of us one day meet the Lord and those who die in friendship with God will live in paradise with him for all eternity. It's natural. Therefore, to assume that composers over the centuries have long imagined what they might hear on their way to their heavenly homeland. What would your ideal soundtrack be to ascend to the beatific vision?
0: Well, I would probably say either the um, tenebrae motets, of the great Spanish composer um, Victoria, or and not or and the uh, the Vespers of Monteverdi, which is just one of the most transcendently beautiful pieces of music imaginable. And even though he's a Lutheran, I don't know. I hold out hope for him. <laughs> I, I, I certainly hope that if I make it to heaven, I'm, I'm able to hear music from Bach's great B minor mass.
1: Mm. That's uh, quite the trio there. I had an opportunity, well, I'm going to have an opportunity, God willing, to actually uh, preside at a tenebrae service um, that's coming true to him. I've never done it before, but uh, I might uh, figure out a way to have that uh, be one of the pieces that we play uh, either during uh, during that service or prior, so I'll, I'll definitely check it out. I mean, maybe I've heard it, but I'm not familiar with what you know the name versus what I may or may not have heard. Yeah, but sure, excellent. Sure. All right, very good. Question number two. These all have a musical theme today, Frank. You can imagine why. But normally, you know, they kind of run the gamut. But here today, I was inspired to give you just music-related ones. So, question number two. Oh. Frank, is an accomplished classical composer, it may surprise people to learn that at a young age you were into Cream and other British invasion acts and played yeah. keyboard for rock bands. Yep. But we also know that grace builds on nature. So in that spirit of little known oddities or background quirks, which of these is false about these great composers? composers? Is it A... Is it A, which of these is false about these great composers? Is it A, Mozart composed the overture to Don Giovanni under the influence and the night before the opera's premiere? Is it B, Jean-Baptiste Lully? I I believe I'm pronouncing his name right. Maybe I'm, I don't know. Jean-Baptiste Lully accidentally caused his own death by stabbing himself in the foot. Or is it C, Edvard Grieg was addicted to caffeine and would down up to a dozen cups of coffee a day. Which of those is false?
0: Frank. Well, it's not B, because I'm I'm I know for a fact that Lully stabbed himself in the foot and it got infected and he died. There is one of the operas that Mozart wrote, the Overture to like the day before or the or the day of, but I don't believe it was Don Giovanni. I have no idea about Edvard Grieg's caffeine habits. Although, as a good Scandinavian, you know they love their coffee. That's a that's a tough one. So I'll, I will give you an answer, but with without a high degree of confidence, I'm going to say A was false.
1: Oh, so close! It actually was C. Uh, Edvard Grieg was not addicted to caffeine. Um, he actually did have a good luck frog figurine that apparently he would pat in a special way before every concert. But caffeine was not oh. among his, his proclivities. And Mozart, at least from what I found, now of course I would defer to a higher authority in you, but Mozart, to what I did find, actually did compose the overture to Don Giovanni after a uh, you know a night basically out drinking with friends. And uh, and he went back and he wrote that, uh, you know, that orchestral overture the night before the premiere of Don Giovanni.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure you're right. I always thought that was the uh, magic flute. But um, yeah, yeah, I should have gone with with what I knew, what I thought I knew from music history instead of speculating about uh, Scandinavians and caffeine.
1: Well, you get a a chance to make it up in question number three because everybody gets question number three right. And that's because it is a time machine question. There's always a time machine question, Frank. So you, you get a chance to travel back to Harlem, New York, in 1955. You chance upon Mary Lou Williams, the great American jazz pianist, arranger, composer, and convert to Catholicism. You know from her story that she's recently walked off the jazz bandstand at the very height of her fame and is now in the midst of a period of despair that will last for years as she tries to find the meaning of life, a chain of events that will lead to her conversion to Catholicism and to a new life's purpose, composing jazz inspired masses worthy of performance all over the world. As a fellow musician and composer, you have an opportunity to share some advice which may be helpful for her on this journey. What advice do you give her?
0: I would advise her to stay in prayer, to pray specifically, to understand the many different aspects of beauty that God encompasses and to use her particular gifts, which I'm sure she probably already recognizes are God-given, to use those gifts given to her by God for his glory. To not try to sound like somebody else, to not, you know, suddenly try to sound like uh, Beethoven or somebody like that, but to sound like Mary Lou Williams as she turns her attention towards praising God with her music.
1: Mm, beautiful, lovely. And actually, I, I believe some of what you gave as advice um, is part of her story. From what I understand, she, you know, she would go, um, she was friends with Dizzy Gillespie and his wife and with Louis Armstrong and his wife, and they almost created a little prayer club where they would pop into sacred spaces throughout the city during this period of time, and one of those sacred spaces was, um, I think, Our Lady of Lords, or maybe another, another parish in New York. I forget exactly the name of it. What it was, but she was very attracted to the Catholic liturgy, and that kind of began her steps towards towards Catholicism. But it began with prayer and trying to find that that moment of prayer. So, um,
0: it, it really has to. It really has to. I mean, I I, I know that from my own experience. I'm I, I can't imagine that it's not true, uh, for. Uh, all the others out there who find themselves in the kind of uh, difficulty and doubt that um, I did and that she did. Um, But that that part about her praising God, honoring God in her music with the voice he had given her and not trying to sound like or become somebody else. He gave her that talent for a reason now use that talent as you go forth
1: beautiful words of advice that 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 apply to everybody listening as well no doubt frank what a great privilege to have you on the show thank you so much for spending time with us um god bless you on your work uh, and your continued ministry and uh and we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for what you're up to
0: Thank you. I look forward to whenever it is that you and I will meet each other in person.
1: Likewise. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time for you to subscribe. Make sure you follow this podcast, share this with a friend, loved one, family, business acquaintance, someone you want to aid in their own spiritual walk. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A usaorg Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.